Hey there, Cremaholics. It is your host, Kenzie, back with another Friday episode. On this episode of Cremaholics, I will be bringing you the story of the Signal Mountain murders. The police there in Hamilton County, Tennessee, have referred to this homicide as one of the most gruesome, uncalled-for murders that they have ever witnessed. This takes place in Signal Mountain, Tennessee, which is just eight miles outside of Chattanooga. And if you know me personally, then you know that Chattanooga now is a major part of my life. So I did what I always do best, and I start looking up crimes in the areas of which I frequent. And I happened to come across the Signal Mountain murders, and I was surprised that I had never heard of this case before. And the Hamilton County Sheriff's Office is absolutely correct. These murders were absolutely gruesome, and they were completely uncalled for. In July of 1988, two men by the name Kenneth Griffith and Earl Smock were serving in the United States Air Force. Both of the men were stationed at the same base down in Florida. Kenneth and Earl were very close, and they did a lot of things together. One weekend in particular, the men decided they wanted to take some leave to take a small weekend trip to Tennessee. Kenneth's father-in-law, Richard Mason, lived there in Signal Mountain, Tennessee, in Hamilton County. And this happens to be a place that Kenneth is really familiar with. The two men decide that they want to spend the entire weekend doing all the things in the woods that they typically don't get to do while down in Florida. On the evening of July 9th, 1988, Kenneth Earl and his father-in-law, Richard, want to take the ATVs out into the woods to head out on some trails and ultimately end up at a swimming hole called the Blue Hole. If you are familiar with East Tennessee or Southeast Tennessee, then you are likely familiar with places like the Blue Hole. In these areas, you can go to trails that are just right off the side of the road, walk a short distance, and they open up to some of the most beautiful places to go swimming in the mountains. Some of these are on private property and some of them are on public property. From my experience from growing up in East Tennessee, it can be hard to determine whether the place you're going swimming is public or private property and there was even times I remember us crossing over private property to get to the public property and sometimes it could be a big issue. The blue hole happened to be on private property. However, the owner prior to the murders never had an issue with anyone coming and going from the property as they pleased. So a lot of locals had just assumed that the blue hole was on public property. About a year prior to the murders of the men, a man named Frank Castile had purchased the property where the Blue Hole was located. It was said by locals that this guy was just angry and mad all the time and he hated people being on the property. He absolutely despised the locals that would come to the Blue Hole. He often just assumed that most of these people were trashy and problematic. It got to the point where Frank was so irritated by the people coming and going from the property that he went to the local police station and made a police report. For whatever reason, the police that he had spoke to told him to start making a log of all the people that would come and go from the property, and Frank would often be pretty aggressive about this. The police suggested to Frank that he get the names of the people that were coming and going from the property and the make, model, and license plate number on their car. 
I really don't understand the reasoning for this or why they thought this was a good idea, but Frank went with it. And again, like I said, he was extremely aggressive about it. He had no problem getting in the face of these people and asking for their information. As the three men headed out into the woods that evening, Richard's wife stated to Unsolved Mysteries that the three men had said that they would be gone for just a few hours, but for her not to wait up for them. His wife stated that she went to sleep that night and she woke up in the morning around 6 a.m. She had noticed that the three men never came home. She said that she stepped out onto the porch and noticed that it had been just a little bit foggy and she thought that maybe the fog had been an issue of why the men never returned home. But little did she know something much more gruesome and evil had taken place. Richard's wife is feeling really uneasy even though it was foggy. And it's because both Richard and Kenneth knew the area very well and the fog should not have been a reason they never made it home. With her having this uneasy feeling, she calls all of their friends and family in the local area and asks them to help go out into the woods and search for the three men. The trail to the Blue Hole was known as Helican Road and on Helican Road was a certain spot called The Gate. It was referred to as The Gate because it was literally a wooded broken down, rotted out farm gate. On the gate were signs that said no trespassing private property. So friends and family, as they were searching for the men and their ATVs, head out to this area and start to really focus in on this spot. However, there was no sign of the three men or their ATVs. Their family was getting more and more worried. However, later that day, police end up getting a call saying that these people were driving down this road and they happened to find three ATVs off in a dump site. And when I say dump site, I do not mean a place that was specifically built by the city to be a dump site. I'm talking like you go out into the woods and people just like dump their trash there, which is something that's also not uncommon for East Tennessee and Southeast Tennessee. This is kind of a prevalent thing here so it was completely illegal for people to be dumping their trash there but all the locals did it and they find the three men's ATVs inside this dump site not only do they find the ATVs in this dump site but the ATVs have blood splatter all over them Although the police cover the three ATVs inside the dump site, the police are completely unaware that the three men at this point are even missing. So the police are trying to figure out where the hell these ATVs came from and why there was blood on them. But on that very same day, the search party goes back out to the gate one more time to look for any type of evidence or clues that would lead them to the men. While these search parties are out there, they end up finding exactly what they're looking for. They end up finding pools of blood and they call police immediately. When the police arrive at the gate, the search party fills them in on all of the information about their missing friends and their ATVs. The police inform the search party that they had already located their ATVs 12 miles away in that dump site. With foul play being suspected, the police ask the search party to leave the area around the gate so they can start combing the area for evidence. While they were looking, they find a bone and brain fragment belonging to the three men. Along with the bone and brain fragment, the police also find shotgun shells laying on the ground. At this point, they now have two different crime scenes, but the bodies of the men are nowhere to be found. Later that day, police meet up with the property owner, Frank Castile, to ask him if he had seen or heard anything suspicious on his property the evening of July 9th. 
When they start questioning Frank, he says that him and his wife were out camping on their property and that he didn't see or hear anything. The police are kind of not buying it because obviously three men were murdered on his property and he happened to be camping out there. How could he just not see or hear anything? So the police ask Frank if he owns a shotgun and he's pretty open and honest about owning a shotgun. And so police ask if he'd be willing to have it ran through ballistics. Frank has no issue with handing over his shotgun. With Frank being so cooperative with the police, they do not name him a suspect or a person of interest just yet. But with Frank's history of being so aggressive about people being on the property, they do not fully take Frank off of their radar. It is now Wednesday, July 13th, just four days after the men go missing, when police would get a phone call from a man who says him and his wife were driving down the road when they had some tire trouble. Their tire went flat, so they pulled off to the side of the road, and when they exited the car, they can smell this insane foul smell like rotting flesh, and when the wind would blow, it would get worse. Right next to where they pulled off, was another one of these illegal dump sites where locals were just throwing their trash off the side of the mountain. The man goes on to tell police that when they smelled this foul smell, they followed it down into the dump site. He says that when they got down into the dump site, they found the bodies of Kenneth, Earl, and Richard. The police rush over to this dump site where the bodies were discovered. And like I stated before, this is not the same dump site where they found the ATVs. But both dump sites were 12 miles each away from the gate where the bone and brain fragments were found. So now police have crime scene number three. Now that the police know for sure that the three men were murdered, they go out into the local community and asking people in the surrounding areas of both dump sites and the Helican Road where the Blue Hole is, if they had seen or heard anything from the evening on July 9th. Multiple witnesses stepped forward to tell police that they did hear gunshots that evening between 7.30 and 8.30 p.m. Not only did each witness's time frames match up, but they all also stated that they each heard three to four gunshots, and every single one of them said they heard it come from the gate. The police are now questioning if every single one of these witnesses heard these gunshots around the same time, how come Frank Castile just happened to not hear any gunshot that evening? Frank is officially back on the top of the radar. Police were counting on ballistics to prove that the shotgun shells belonged to Frank, but unfortunately the information came back inconclusive. With the information coming back inconclusive about the shotgun shells, the police have realized they have now lost the only thing they had to hopefully tie Frank to the murders. And with no other suspects, person of interest, or leads in the case, the investigation goes cold. Although Frank was never officially considered a suspect or person of interest, the local community made it very clear to Frank and his family that they were not wanted in that town anymore. There was so much animosity towards them that Frank and his wife Susie 
had made the decision to move away from the town. They knew that anytime they would leave the house, all eyes were on them. Years have now passed since Frank and his family left the town of Signal Mountain, and Frank starts up a very shameful affair with an old friend named Marie Hill. And once his wife Susie finds out about this affair, she is not happy. Susie is determined to do anything she can to make sure that this affair stops. Susie sends an anonymous letter to Marie Hill, and inside this letter was newspaper clippings that she had cut out, and the newspaper clippings were designed as letters, and when the letters were put together, it read, Hey, you're in a relationship with a man that killed three people. And the second part of the letter said, I know because I helped him. Marie is freaked out about these letters, so she goes to Frank and confronts him with the letters. But Frank is very casual about it. He says he was investigated, but he denied any involvement. There was just something inside Marie that was telling her that Frank was not telling the truth, so she goes to the police. When she arrives at the police station, she tells police that she received two anonymous letters in the mail, but one of them had been burned by Frank, and it is the letter that read, I helped him do it. The police asked Marie if she would be willing to wear a wire and confront Frank. She says she's not comfortable wearing a wire, but does agree to let her house be bugged. After the police bug her house, Susie comes over to confront her and Frank about their affair, but at this time, Marie is not home, so Susie starts confronting Frank. The audio picks up this small excerpt. I'm tired of her. I've stood by you for 30 years. I've stood by you through one of the worst things we could ever go through. I had myself drugged down to the police station and fingerprinted because of what you have done. Another piece that the audio picked up was Susie saying to Frank, Frankie, now honestly, I thought she may be setting you up. And like I said, if you go down, I go down and I don't want to go down. Frank asks Susie, what does that mean? And Susie replies, if they decide to pin that thing on you, however they try and do it, they are going to get me too. And Frank tells Susie, I think we are all too paranoid and I think we need to quit. Thankfully, this recording was just enough for police to have probable cause to be able to get a warrant to search the house. After a search was executed, Frank was arrested in 1997. Not too long after Frank was arrested in 1997, in 1998, just a year later, a jury convicted him on three counts of first-degree murder. When the autopsies were completed on the bodies, it was determined that Kenneth Griffith died from a shotgun blast to the head, which left a portion of his head missing. Richard Mason died from a shotgun blast as well, but Mr. Mason was shot in his chest. 
The autopsy showed that Earl Smock also died from shotgun blasts, but very sadly, he wasn't shot just once, he was shot twice. It was determined that Earl had originally been shot in the right shoulder, and he had likely gotten off his ATV and started running for his life only for Frank to catch up with him and take out the final shot to his chest, which ended his life. The police were absolutely correct, like I said in the beginning. This was a completely senseless, uncalled-for murder. While in prison on that first conviction, Frank files an appeal for a second trial, stating that during the first one, they did not have enough evidence to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he committed the murders. That second trial was granted, but for a second time, Frank would be convicted of three counts of first-degree murder, and he would die in prison in May of 2019. His son, to this day, says that his father is absolutely innocent and that he had nothing to do with the murders. He believes that his father is so innocent that he writes a book based on his innocence. Crimeaholics. If you haven't already, I highly encourage you to join our Crimeholics podcast discussion group on Facebook or follow us on Instagram where I will have pictures of all three victims and Frank Castile. Crimeholics, as always, be aware and take care.